To almost every question, there is someone in our ecosystem who can give a really, really good answer. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Adrian, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. A welcome back for you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks a lot, Sylvan, and happy to have you here and welcome uh, on the AI campus in Berlin. We can still smell the, the novelty of the building. It's really impressive what you built here. We're going to, of course, talk about your Morantix story. You are the founder and CEO of Morantix, uh, the artificial intelligence venture builder. And before we're going to talk about that, you are also known as the founder and COO of the successful Swiss shopping platform DineDeal, which was sold to Ringier. And we did our research and basically saw that there were so many new companies that were basically founded out of the success of DineDeal. So to start off this podcast episode, I wonder what actually made DineDeal such a strong breeding ground for new ventures, entrepreneurs, startups? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, um, not very surprisingly, my answer will be like the team, the people made Dine Deal this incredible success. And there's also this part behind the story that we were hiring a lot of so-called entrepreneurs in residence, which is people who are keen and hungry to build something on their own, but willing to spend one or two years at a high growth company, working with the founders and being on a super fast learning path. And we were lucky enough to have an incredible amount of these people at Dine Deal and learn from them, also teach them and build a symbiotic uh, kind of relationship that helped us to actually scale Dine Deal much faster than if it was only us founders doing the building um, together with our team. How did you actually recruit these entrepreneurs and residents? What were you looking for and where did you find them? Well, it's kind of a network thing and a flywheel effect as well. So as soon as you have found the first few and successfully worked with them, mm -hmm. then it's always going to be like, you know, word of mouth and, um, and in, in, in so far, um, it's, it's really about the start and getting things right at the start and, and find the first few hand picked people and then start building with them. And, um, uh, we did a lot of, uh, you know, outreach also to universities, mm -hmm. to the startup world by that time not only in 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 switzerland but also specifically here in berlin as well and we have just found many many people also uh in the great city of berlin who we made to join us in in, in zurich by the time amazing and was there any specific program or or path or what did the role of the entrepreneur in residence actually look like back at the time deal so yeah we wanted to believe that there was kind of a program <laughs> i think it was still pretty custom, I would say, yeah. with each person who joined us. Um, I think the general denominating factor was that everyone joining this position was somewhat working on really, really strategic projects that were extremely important for the success of the company. Yeah. 
and that were at the same time also very operational. You know, so it was all about, you know, getting the strategy right, but then also getting the hands-on execution right. And that was one of the reasons why we were looking for exactly these kind of people who are able to craft a vision, but then also are successfully executing on it. Got it. And after the successful exit in Switzerland, you actually moved away from Switzerland. You are now based here in Berlin. Why is Berlin the right place to be at this time in your you know, life and career? Yeah, so first of all, I was, I was living uh, in San Francisco for a short time and uh, also doing kind of a test drive uh, for, mm -hmm. for, for, for me and my family there. And we just realized that, you know, San Francisco is a great place to work. Uh, I didn't like it that much for the normal part of living. Uh, I just found it a bit too streamlined and optimized for work. Mm -hmm. And I was lacking somewhat the diversity um, of the city, especially. I mean, I'm not talking about the great nature and the mountains, the sea. Um, that's definitely something, you know, Berlin does not have, and I'm really missing the mountains. <laughs> I can, think I can say that as a Luckily, Swiss. Switzerland is not that far away. <laughs> That's true, one hour away. Um, no, but honestly, um, for us then, we started to look around and we realized that Berlin was kind of a perfect combination, both for private uh, and also business reasons. So uh, we found great schools for, for, for kids. Um, and also, uh, I really enjoy the, the lifestyle of Berlin, which is very diverse. And you can basically decide how you want to live every single day. You can go to a really nice three-star restaurant. Um, and then the next day you go to a really nice burger or kebab place. And that's the thing uh, that I really enjoy. Um, and you know, from, from a talent perspective, I think uh, what makes Berlin so great is that it's very, very international. I know people don't like to hear that when I say it, but I think it's, it's one of two real cosmopolitan cities in Europe. Uh, one is London and the other one is, is, is Berlin. Um, just from a diversity and like real international um, point of view. So... Point proven, actually, here Amerantix and our portfolio companies, we have a team of more than 30 or consisting than more than 30 nationalities. And the majority of these people were moving to Berlin to work with us. Well, and in that regard, I also wonder, you know, was there anything missing in Zurich or in, in Switzerland in, in general that also led you to, to move to Berlin? Because... Some parts you could have probably also found in, in Switzerland or built in Switzerland. No, honestly, I think Zurich and Switzerland is, I think, one of the most beautiful places to live. Like, if we're real, then that's just what it is. Um, it's not the most dynamic, though. Mm -hmm. And that's also something that you're going to feel in the culture, in the culture of people, and also in the, you know, hungriness of Let's say the majority of people. There are always outstanding people everywhere. True. Um, but I just tend to find less of these outstanding people in a very nice place like Switzerland because also life is just very nice and cozy and cushy. And you don't have to fight every single day. And that 
has an influence on people for the good and the bad, I would say. And um, I think the second part that is probably as important for us specifically, and, and, you know, I mentioned these 13 nationalities and it's growing every day. The easiness to get people to work here in Germany, in Berlin, um, from all over the world is just a huge factor. And one of the issues we constantly had back in the days at Deal whenever we were hiring people from outside the European Union, it was a huge mess and it was a huge effort to get those um, um, exemptions for people to work for you. And that was just a, a, an incredible effort we had to do every single time. And um, I just didn't want that for us here because we were clear at Mrantics that if you want to build something successful, we need to attract the top, top talent in machine learning and the adjacent industries. And that's not going to be possible when you have to fight for every single work permit. Yeah, they come from all the, over the world, also outside of Europe, of course. How, how is that actually done here in Berlin? I hope that we will get to a start of Visa in Switzerland to make that process easier. How does it work here? Do you have something like that? Or is it just a, a very easy process also not for startups. No, I honestly, I'm not totally into the details, but I think it's called blue card and it's a very simple process. If you have a job offer, then it's, it's not a matter of, it's only a matter of time. It's not a question if. Yeah, nice. And one last question on that Switzerland, Berlin uh, comparison. You mentioned the lack of hunger in Switzerland that has, of course, pros and cons. Do you think that this is also sort of a threat or a danger for the future of the Swiss startup ecosystem? Well, honestly, I think it's also a threat for Europe as a whole, because if you look at the dynamics you have in the, in the US venture world and also the dynamics that have recently unfolded in, in the Chinese ecosystem, I am both excited and scared. Um, because they just run at the very different pace. And I think that's something we need to watch out for as a continent. And also, you know, stop making those small definitions like, okay, this is Switzerland, this is Germany, uh, this is France. Uh, we need to think as um, a United States of Europe. Yeah, I fully agree. I hope that we will see some development in that regard. So now we, of course, also want to talk about Merantics. Let's start with the beginnings. You started Merantics, the venture studio in 2016, together with Rasmus, your co-founder. First of all, how do you meet uh, each other and what makes a good team? Yeah, um, we have met through a common friend, actually, who was also Andreas Brenner. He was also one of the uh, entrepreneurs in residence at Deal before he started building his own uh, companies. Um, and I was on, I was just back from, from San Francisco and I was meeting him for an update coffee and he was asking me, okay, so you're now back. Uh, what are you going to do? And I, I, I told him, yeah, I just attended some machine learning courses in Stanford um, at the university uh, while I was, I, was, I was living there. And uh, I think I'm going to, build something into this space because I believe it's going to be the most important technology of the 21st century. And then he said, yeah, you know what? You're going to meet my 
uh, roommate Rasmus, who back then was just wrapping up his his uh, PhD at the ETH, and that's how he met. Amazing. And what actually makes you a good team? Because you seem to have very complementary skill sets also. We do. And, and at the same time, we have a lot of overlapping skills, I would say. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, while um, being an academic uh, power uh, brain, uh, Rasmus also has a lot of, um, a lot of business savviness and, and business skills and a great understanding. And he's a super fast learner in everything Relate, relating to, to business, which wasn't part of, of his education. Mm -hmm. And and also, uh, he, he was building a company during his, his PhD, right? He was building Hack, um, Hack Zurich. Exactly. Um, and on the other hand, my background is kind of, you know, I come from the economic side, so I did economics and, and business. Um, and at the same time, I was always coding. So I started my career as a software developer, as an engineer. So I have a deep understanding of technology and I can ask all the nasty questions. Uh, I would say today, I'm probably not the right person, you know, to, to build the technology. Um, I could still do some things on, 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 a, on a weekend project, but I uh, would never interfere with uh, the real work uh, of our engineers. But still, I, I have a deep understanding of what's going on. And so we, we, we really are complementary, but we also are able to kind of work seamlessly together because we understand enough of each other's um, domains. Sounds like a very powerful team. It is, and and I think it's a it's it's also it's also a great a great partnership in terms of you know friendship and trust uh, that we've built over over the years, and I'm extremely grateful for that because that's again what makes a powerful team. Um, we understand each other even without uh, talking uh, every every hour. Uh, we and, and also we trust each other. Amazing. I also wonder why did you actually decide to build an AI-centric venture studio instead of building another startup company yourself? Yeah, that's another that's another really great question. I think, and it's a very personal one, of course, because I, you know, after the exit with with Dine Deal, I realized that I didn't want to become an investor only mm -hmm. because I just liked the operating side so much, um, and I also believe that. I can add more uh, and bring more to the table on the operational side of things mm -hmm. uh, than I can as a as a as an investor. And with the venture studio model that we have now built at Morantics, of course, I can combine sort of both worlds. Mm -hmm. um, but I would still say I, I'm I'm slightly leaning more towards the operating side. Um, and another thing that I learned um, also during Dine Deal was that. I really, really enjoy this, you know, zero to one phase uh, when you start to iterate on an idea, validate it in the market, start to build the first team and build the first product and, and then execute on the go to market. That's just what excites me the most. Um, and, you know, with, with, with Mirantix now, I'm kind of focusing on, on this part um, a lot. And then once the company starts to grow, we have a, an amazing team in place who is going to grow the company further. And we as, as, as Morantix are again, incubating new companies. And that's, I think, 
a pretty cool thing that I can also imagine myself doing over the next 10 and maybe 15, 20 years. Amazing. You also mentioned before, you know, how you discovered the, the love uh, for AI and how transformative that technology can and will be. You also said, uh, I think it was in a different interview, that the most impactful companies have yet to be created. So what do you think? What might those impactful companies in the AI space be that we will see in the future? Well, you know, I think if you look at every single industry out there, I believe that many, many of them will be thoroughly transformed by machine learning AI in a way that sometimes we probably can't even think um, of today. And, and I'm, I'm making a comparison that is usually, it's not a very exact one, but it, it sort of gives an idea of the order of magnitude of, of things happening. And, and this is the internet, right? So 20 years ago, the internet was a big hype and majority of business models around it wouldn't work. Uh, we had a huge, um, huge crash and, and, and basically everything came down. And now, 20 years later, uh, if you look at how the internet has transformed so many different industries in its core, um, that's, I think, a, a good idea and, 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 and direction to think of how uh, AI is going to transform each and every industry. And, you know, when you, when you look at what machine learning AI is doing, it's basically automating decision-making at a much higher um, accuracy than uh, usually humans are able to perform at over a constant uh, uh, time. So in each case where you have complex decision-making that is based on a lot of experience and with the experience you get better and better, that's something where you'll sooner or later see machines coming in supporting humans um, as with every technology before um, in the first place and then at some point also opening up you know more time or free time for us to focus on new things because the machine mm -hmm. is just doing this thing much better yeah. and i think the the first industries where you start to really feel the impact um, are of course you know, autonomous, autonomous driving systems. And I'm not talking of level four and five because it's still a long way there. But if you look at level two and three, it's already pretty impressive how things go uh, if you've experienced yourself. And then you have, uh, you know, medicine uh, where a lot of the medical imaging is now being uh, automated and thus gives access to a much larger number of people to medical medical care. Um, and you know, I'm not talking only about the saturated uh, Western market, but if you think about, um, if you think about um, developing countries where access to medicine and medical care is, is, is a real issue, um, having automated systems that can perform at scale, is just opening a whole new array of, 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 of options and, and opportunities. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in the, in the really near future. So the potential is immense. At the same time, machine learning and AI have also become sort of some buzzwords in the startup space. 
So you mentioned the crash, the meltdown of the dot-com bubble before when the internet happened. Do you think that we also have or will see something similar in the AI and machine learning space? I think we do. And and it's probably not going to be that visible because it's it's sort of different for each and every industry. But if you look at autonomous driving and how it evolved, I would say we also had a hype and, and we now had a, a lot of uh, illusions coming crashing down that, no, it's not going to happen in the next five years that we're going to have level four or five systems. It's just not. Um, and you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, we thought that it's only going to take 10 years and we, we get there. Um, so you have these corrections in, in each domains. Um, and, and, and therefore I think it's, it's a different, it's a different kind of, um, hype cycle that you see, uh, when you compare it to the internet, but yeah, you have hype, uh, and, and, and illusions coming crashing down as always. Um, and I believe only after, and we all know the, the Gartner, uh, the Gartner hype cycle, we only, we know only after that, um, you know, there comes the plateau and then everything goes up again and all of a sudden things start to work and then you start to see the value creation that is happening. So that's part of the development in that sense. I would say so. So I also want to, of course, talk about your venture studio approach. Maybe first we have to also define the terms a bit because you are a venture studio, but there are also incubators. So what is the difference between the two? Yeah, I think a venture studio is is some specific sort of um, an incubator, I would say. Mm -hmm. And the venture studio, the biggest notion is on the people and on the validation industry side. So uh, the two most important factors for success in our belief is getting the right people together with a very broad um, background and, and domains. So you don't need the engineers only, but you need the industry experts, you need sales, marketing people that thoroughly understand this new challenge. And only by bringing all these different domains together, you can actually build successful solutions into, into entirely new markets. Um, and I think that's the foremost important part in, in, in building successful machine learning businesses. And the second part is it's not technology only, but it's also about real value creation and thus generating a real sensible business case for things. And so I think this validation going out and, and checking whether there is a market for something even before you build it is extremely important. And that's also something that um, really scales um, uh, the more you do it, right? Because we have a lot of industry partners now with lots of connections. And whenever we start to test something new, we can do that based on our network that we have built and the network is growing every, every single day. And the third part, of course, is the financing part that is going a bit different in our case than the classic venture uh, uh, company builder, I would say. Um, and also the, the sort of investors that we um, are aligning around us are a bit different compared to, to other places. Yeah, you basically just mentioned your venture process. 
uh, ideation, incubation, and also scaling. Let's talk about a bit more of the details of the each process step. So with the ideation, what do you actually do there? How do you support the ideation process? What happens in that stage? So typically we start with first hypotheses, with first assumptions. Um, we usually look at an industry and ask ourselves first, okay, how is this industry going to be transformed? How is this industry going to evolve? And what's the role machine learning AI is going to play in it? And if you believe that there is a strong shift and strong transformation ahead and machine learning is going to play a very vital role and thus also has an edge in this sector industry, uh, then we start to get very interested and start to usually look at a lot of different possible business models, mm -hmm. how to capture this kind of transformation that is ahead. Um, and we usually also think of a business model in a way that we want to really see a large value chain opportunity for us. So we don't like to see ourselves as, you know, an AI SaaS supplier that is basically going to supply a technology, but we rather see us as value chain integrators who then try to basically capture an entire part or the whole part of the value chain um, over time. Because we look at cases where we believe that data supremacy is going to lead to uh, a real competitive advantage. And by actually getting there, we'll also be able to become one of the leading players in this specific market over the time of, let's say, 10, 15 years, of course. Yeah. And when does actually the operating team come in? Do you already do that analysis with the operating team or, or is that your Morantic's core team that does this analysis? We do both. Mm -hmm. um, we do some of the ideation validation as a studio and we also come with certain ideas and, and, and hypotheses. And at the same time, of course, a lot is also coming in uh, with our founders and their backgrounds and their ideas. So it's kind of it's kind of both sides. Do you notice any difference in terms of motivation or success rate between the two models? Because I can imagine if a founder joins later and it's not his or her own baby in terms of idea, that you might have a harder time to succeed. No, because that doesn't really happen. When I say, you know, our own ideas, then it's really more like a direction we want to explore mm -hmm. and we have a few very strong signals that this might be a good model but directly after we're gonna we're gonna build a team with a strong founder founder team uh, who then is going to really dig deeper and yeah. build the case first so we don't we don't hire people into a job right. <laughs> we still hire founders who then yeah. basically build it Exactly. That makes sense. And who then actually makes it from the ideation stage to the next stage, the incubation phase? In the ideation phase, a founder, a founder team is typically working on three, five, sometimes seven different cases. Also a lot of that in parallel, mm -hmm. which is actually, I believe, a very interesting value proposition for me as an entrepreneur, as a founder, because I get to see a lot of different 
business cases and investment opportunities. And um, once I decide which one I will go after, I really have a very educated decision that I can make because I can compare it to others. So it's sort of a portfolio theory, right. uh, you could say. And, and I think that makes, that makes the conviction we then build together with the founder and also from, from, from our side as a studio and investor uh, even greater. Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Nuco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. Again, that's nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show. And how do you actually make that decision? Like, what do you look for? Do you have any, you know, customer feedback that you can take into consideration? Do you have pre-sales that you do? Just how do you actually make that decision whether it's worth pursuing the idea or not? Yeah, it's usually, it's usually we can see a really, really large vision and we can see a billion dollar company opportunity. That's one part. And at the same time, as you actually mentioned, we can already see pre-sales. So we have clients or potential clients who are really keen to come in and that can be you know signed contracts even or signed letters of intent that just show a very strong interest which is usually then enough for us to say okay uh we start we start building it yeah that's the beauty in the b2b sector i love that well you know i mean in 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 b2c um, you can also do a lot of testing, right? So you sure. can get a lot of customer feedback um, by actually going out with an idea and, you know, building a, a simple landing page and then just seeing like how fast uh, the, the signups grow. Yeah. And if you compare four or five different models, uh, you'll see a huge difference between them. And then you can basically also uh, choose, your, choose your way. So, but yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, I think with, with the B2B space, what is great is actually um, we have very, very deep validation um, once we start because we were able to speak to 20, 30, maybe 50 customers or potential customers. And that gives us a very strong conviction or not of course. To, to, to follow through. Right. And then in the incubation phase, what happens there? Well, we actually built the team and the product and we execute on the on the go to market. That's a short version. Right. <laughs> of course, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's very complex and it's, it's, it's usually also taking quite some time. So the ideation validation part usually uh, is six, 12 months. And then, and then incubation is usually 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the moment when we you know, start to build a team, start to identify also what kind of team we need, because that's also something we do very different um, than, than other um, incubators. Uh, we only start to build the team, the bigger team, let's say, once we know exactly what direction we want to go. Mm -hmm. So we also know what kind of resources we'll need. And so it um, also kind of, um, 
makes our makes our process much leaner uh, because there are i would say less pivots uh, once we start operating and we have a very clear idea about what we need to to build this yeah i, I think that makes a lot of sense because otherwise if you have to change with a large organization, it's not only going to cost you more money, but also takes more time to, again, align everybody. And that's just usually a waste of time and resources. Absolutely. And, you know, um, premature scaling is, I think, one of the one of the biggest problems that especially B2B deep tech um, usually has. Because if you go to, um, to outside investors, uh, 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 let's say a normal VC, majority of them want to see a really cool team before they start investing. But then again, sometimes the further part of the ideation validation phase doesn't really require everyone on this team. And so people would just sit idle or start doing things that are costing money, but don't actually really add any value. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen that all as, as an investor as well. So um, I think that's one of the great advantages of, of our setup that we are extremely capital efficient from an investor's perspective in this first in this first phase, and therefore also can be very brutal uh, with ourselves as well. When things just don't work, we will just restart and do another business case, and that's no real thing because it's maybe a founder and the second person on the team, but not five to ten people already. Exactly. You know, talking about costs, even for the ideation phase, but at least also here for the incubation phase, you, of course, also have salaries to pay, bills to pay. How do you finance the ideas and the companies until here? Yeah, so actually the 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 ideation validation part is also what we call pre-seed stage. Um, that is financed through the studio and the studio actually gets a program fee from the fund. So it's sort of a management fee, but bigger um, because we pay all the salaries with or from the, from the ideating teams as well that are not yet incubated. Once we incubate companies, the fund starts investing into the seed phase. Got it. Do you also take on any additional external money already at the incubation phase or is it really the studio first and then the fund uh, that is also led by you. The studio, um, exactly, the studio takes care of the pre-seed phase. And then in the seed phase, the fund starts to come in. And we have just recently started also to consider other seed investors for this early phase, um, especially the ones that can add strategic value to then um, come to a, a Series A. Got it. Another thing, especially in the AI space that you see these days is the political level and also the regulation. So that's also something that you do have to take care of in the incubation phase. So first of all, how do you support your companies in that regard? And where do you see need for change on the political level these days? Yeah, so I think that's also one of these um, compounding effects that we have, of course, you know, having built the medical imaging company with a fully blown certified medical product uh, gave us and our organization um, a lot of experience and expertise. And the team of, of Jonas the, and, and Stefan, the, the Vara team, um, who have built this medical product, um, they're also part of our founder community. And thus, they're very happy and, and willing to share every 
um, experience they've made. So that gives a brutal advantage, a very unfair advantage to everyone in our community building another company into that space. Uh, so there's a lot of knowledge sharing going on um, in our teams and, and between the teams. Um, and the second part, yeah, I mean, the regulatory side uh, is, is extremely important. And um, the EU has just recently, you know, uh, uh, basically published uh, their, their plan how to, how to regulate um, machine learning AI. Uh, which is very important, I believe. Um, it's definitely not perfect. Uh, there's a lot of flaws in it. And I think some like really basic conceptual errors, uh, like, for example, we're trying to regulate a lot of stuff that isn't even working yet. So we don't, you don't actually wait until it's there, but you try to regulate things in advance, which uh, philosophically might be interesting and nice and make you feel more safe, but you also significantly slow things down and i think it's it's a risk mentality that won't work to be honest and mm. frank um but maybe to come to a different side of things we do not only criticize but we also um try to you know uh take the responsibility that we think we have as a as a as a one of the prominent makers of, of AI in, in Europe. So uh, we are also working on many, many different levels and, and layers with uh, government organizations, um, with the political system. We have even built um, the German AI Association uh, and ha helped to, to found this uh, organization that has mo now more than 300 uh, uh, members. Very nice. So you, you're also very active on that level because it's part of, you know, whatever you're building for the future. It's an important puzzle piece. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's, um, it's of course, the, the, it's kind of the breeding ground for new technologies. And I think at the same time, also, it's about creating this awareness in the public um, and also making sure that people in the public who have little understanding of the technology do not only see the dangers, but also the immense upside potential and all the opportunities that, that come with. Right. So we have the last, the third step left in your process, the scaling phase. Who makes it to that stage? So far, all of our ventures we started, um, because as you can see, there is a lot of de-risking mm -hmm. in, um, in our process in advance. So, um, Contrary to, I'd say, classic VC approach, we do the de-risking or we try to do the de-risking in advance. And um, so far that was successful, but of course, future will tell um, whether that remains. We are very sure of that, but you know, uh, as an entrepreneur, you also should not be uh, too sure of things. So I'm always um, saying this with a grain of uh, salt. The, the phase of, of the, the third phase, the scaling phase is, is, is basically the phase when we start to um, work with outside investors in the lead. So mm -hmm. that's where the fund no longer is in the, in the lead and where we look out for new investors joining us in, in building the company um, successfully. Mm -hmm. We do not exit there. And also we have absolutely no 
um, intention to do so. Um, so we stay on board with the companies. We further support them and are kind of an, uh, uh, maybe an, yeah, kind of an active board member at that time. And active really can mean that we come back uh, to a rather operational side if the situation requires it. Whether it's a financing round, whether it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a team building effort, uh, whether it's a pivot, um, we will really get very close again and also get our hands hands dirty and and help the team. Amazing, and you know now we we walked through the different stages from ideation to scaling, and I can also imagine that these different stages they also require completely different skill sets because validating and choosing the right idea is completely different from scaling up a company and probably going international. So how do you make sure with your team that you can actually also deliver maximum value and also fulfill all these different needs at the same time? Yeah, so first of all, um, our approach, how we understand Venture Studio is we have a very, very small team on the studio side. So we try to build each and every capability that the company needs on the company, on the team side. So we don't have a layer of shared services, for example, but we build everything very specifically for each venture, for each company. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that's the right thing to do in our domain, in our space. Um, and so we really try to ask the right questions, help our teams to find the, the answers. Also by being operationally very involved, right? So we also do customer exploration. We do sales. We go out and, and talk to people. We do recruiting, uh, whatever the company requires. And of course, we work with a bunch of great advisors, experts in the specific domains where we identify, okay, this is not something we can actually generate the ideal value. Then we bring mm -hmm. someone else in to help the team. And as you can imagine, the cool thing about this venture studio model and this huge community of companies and founders and teams actually also brings unique value in the sense that to almost every question, there is someone in our ecosystem who can give a really, really good answer. And I think that's also um, what excites me so much about this, about this ecosystem that we've built here and we continue to build. And in that regard, you actually need access to top talents, but also to large investors, to the researchers, to large data sets, to then also work with that data. How do you actually get access to all of those top uh, people? Yeah, I think the 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 people access is, is is as you said probably the most important one, and honestly, without without sounding too arrogant, but uh, in many many ways we've almost solved that. Um, so we have such a great inbound of people that for every hire we do statistically, we look at around fifty profiles. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, uh, allows us to not only hire the smartest IQ-wise people, but also the ones who have a really, really strong EQ and thus, uh, you know, team 
capability and, and team competence and social competence and are really fun to work with at the end, uh, right? So um, I think, and, and as you said, I think that's the, that's the part of the building phase that I am most obsessed with, mm -hmm. you know, finding the great talents and then building really, really great teams with people who complement each other, but also, you know, work really well in a personal human sense um, together. And um, I think that's where we also add the most value as a studio because we are able to attract incredible people with a team that is only one or two um, one or two strong. And because we have this great environment and this high level of trust, um, we can attract people in a, in, a, in a really early phase where there's not even a company to actually say, you know what, I want to join this. And I, I have a lot of trust in this whole ecosystem, in this whole, in this whole um, approach that, that they do. Hmm. And we've just recently seen we have built two more teams over the last couple months um, that are just stellar in the sense where people come from what they've done before and now they join this like super small new team and they um, do such a great leap of faith, uh, which is which is making me ex feeling extremely grateful. What allowed you to get to that position? Is it, you know, your success as an entrepreneur yourself? If, if you reflect on that, is it being also present in the, in the media and talking about AI and therefore building sort of a personal brand around that topic? Or what would you sort of associate the, the success, the position that you're in with? You know, of course, it's always the people. So whenever someone looks at Merantix, they will look at our team. They will right. look at us as founders. They will look at our other founders, our other portfolio companies. So to sum this up and make it simple, I would say it's the Merantix brand that is, of course, still growing every single day. Um, but I would say this is the combination and the culmination of, of everything that he just said um, that makes it much easier today than two years ago to attract this kind of talent. Nice. I also quickly want to talk about your fund that you mentioned. It comes in in the incubation phase. You launched it in early 2020 with a fund size of 25 million euros. So first of all, how difficult was it from a legal or regulatory perspective to really start your own fund here in Berlin? I think it was, it was okay. Um, we decided to build a German-based fund because the size is rather small. So, you know, other jurisdictions were just too expensive. Mm -hmm. um, Germany isn't the most easy place to build a fund, but I think working with the right uh, kind of specialists, this was still a rather straightforward task. Took some time, yes, it costs some money, <laughs> but I think it's it's very feasible. Um, I think the fundraising was the much, let's say, harder part. Harder also, especially in the sense that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're actually used to fundraise. So uh, you know the drill and you think, okay, 
I know how this goes, so let's just get it started. And then once you start fundraising for a fund, you actually realize that it's a very different kind of game you're playing um, because you're not talking to VCs as you are as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. but you're talking to the investors who invest in VCs. Right. And they operate very different than VCs. Um, and, and so first of all, you have to learn this new space and how these investors think and, and tick. And um, you also realize that they are on a very different you know, time scale. Uh, they move much slower than uh, a VC does. And so you're starting to build these relations and you start to convince the first uh, few uh, of these investors. And that, of course, helps to get the next ones. But it's still, it's a very, very slow process. Um, and uh, I think we had also great help of, uh, of, of, of a, a firm called Trusted Insight. Uh, they're a fund-to-fund investment uh, company and they help building new venture funds. Um, and uh, they also opened us a lot of doors to institutional investors who we as, as you know, Rasmus and Adrian alone probably wouldn't have been able to get to in the first place. You know, because a lot of these institutional investors also, they come in in your second, third fund after right. they see your performance over the first five to seven years. Yeah. Um, and so we were extremely lucky uh, uh, with, with, with Trusted Insight and, uh, and, and were able to, you know, um, even work with, with institutional investors like um, Kellogg Foundation, for example, or Johnson Johnson Family Trust, um, the, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, who also invested. And we're also going to announce in, in August, which is probably after uh, we've recorded this, or you will hear this um, afterwards, probably in, in September or October somewhere. Uh, we're also going to announce that SoftBank is going to join our fund as an investor, which of course also makes us extremely proud and, and happy. Um, and it's another, it's another testimony, of course, to um, what we're building here. Mm -hmm. And um, also for us, the fact that we have won the most important AI investor in the world, um, of course, is, is, is great for our whole ecosystem. Would you say the main difference between, you know, the fund investment and raising money for your startup is that as a startup, you're basically selling a vision, you're selling hope to a certain degree. And with the fund, they want to see past performance and basically pr a proof that it's working. I mean, that's the best case scenario, right? So uh, <laughs> the, the, the fund investor always wants to see your track record mm -hmm. and track record, not so much your entrepreneurial success, that's of course make, giving you some legitimacy um, if you are a successful entrepreneur, but it's, it's not enough. You also need to show your performance as an investor. And of course, for a first time fund manager, that's kind of difficult. Um, so then you look at your, your previous investments that you've done also as a, as a private person, and you somewhat try to combine this into a, into a story. But it's it's hard. It's 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 hard in the sense that um, it's a lot of legwork to do in I the first imagine. place. Yeah. Let's also quickly talk about the business model of the fund. Usually, you have the management fee, two to three percent. Then also a carried interest in case of a successful exit. 
basically 25 millions is something that people say, oh, that's at the lower end or not even worth it to start a fund. You need at least 50 million. That's what we hear from people that we talk to. So why was it still worth to set up the fund with 25 million? Yeah, I think because we operate very differently from a classic uh, VC fund, right? So um, with us, um, as I mentioned before, uh, we have a very special way of investing. Uh, so the fund invests through the program fee in the in the pre-seed stage because mm -hmm. there is no incubated companies yet. So we, we use this program fee to cover the, the costs, but it's part of the investment already. And then the fund after invests in the seed stage through uh, co quarterly convertibles who are then converted into uh, into equity as of series A. Um, and the fund always gets uh, around 20% in each company we build. Um, that makes it very, very special because that's actually quite a strong equity holding for the for the early stage um, pre-seed and seed phase for, for a fund. Um, and on the other hand, you have uh, the situation that we do not as carry because we have stakes equity as a studio in right. the companies again. So our fund structure is very, very different from the classical VC setup, yeah. which also um, is sort of makes you very interesting for investors because you're somewhat a new subcategory in the VC space and you're also helping them to diversify. But at the same time, of course, you're a very new kind of animal that you first really need to explain. I think the, the venture studio model um, has become a bit more prominent over the last couple of years, especially in the US. Mm -hmm. And now we're also starting to see more and more um, happening in, in, in this space in, in Europe. Wonderful. Before we talk about the future, one last question, uh, sort of a bit of a challenging one. You're heavily invested in, in Verantix, in, in the companies that you built. Um, with your success, your track record, you could have also just, you know, invested smaller tickets, enjoy life, don't do uh, work too much. Now you're heavily involved here. You have long working days, probably also a bit more stress uh, than you might have hoped for. Why do you do that? Why do you get up uh, in the morning and, and build Morantix with all the success and the money that you already made in your previous successes? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's an aggressive question. I, I think it's a very fair one. You know, I'm driven. I'm, I'm a very driven person. I want to have impact and I love what I'm doing. And if not, I'm stopping uh, with it. So I am very, very passionate about what I do. So I don't count the hours, uh, but I, I look at what kind of impact do I have? And does it make sense that I'm doing it or maybe someone else who is much better suited to it? Um, so yeah, to sum this up, I think I just love building companies and that's what I do here now. And and with Morantix, we have somewhat built a system, a machine, uh, a studio that helps us to do or helps me and, and us to do this at scale. And yeah, you successfully helped build seven companies so far. So what are your ambitious plans for the future? Yeah, so with the current, with the current fund, uh, the plan is to build 10 to 15 companies over the next three years. And um, as you can expect, we have many, many more ideas for uh, 
next vehicles, next funds, and maybe also even funds that can invest in, in other companies. Because right now we are totally focused on investing in our own incubations. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, we have a lot of ideas how to also scale uh, the impact of Morantics. Yeah, we're really excited to see what else you're cooking. So to wrap up this episode, we prepared some rapid fire questions for you. I either give you a short question or a choice, and you have to explain your answer in one sentence. Are okay. you ready? Yeah. Perfect. Founder or investor? I would still consider myself as a founder because I still do the operator side. And of course, the investor part is a smaller uh, of, of my daily life, I would say. Makes sense. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Seven and a half. Team or idea? Team. Where do you go to recharge? Mountains and forests, usually with my kids. Fantastic. And the last one, I'm really curious to see what you say here, Berlin or Zurich? I have to say Berlin, definitely, um, for now and also the foreseeable future. Um, which again has to do with my with my with my kids. Um, they are at school here now, and uh, it's a great school, and I love life here. So it's definitely going to be Berlin. So no plans to relocate back to Switzerland yet. No. Fantastic, Adrian. Thank you so much for talking to us. Always a pleasure, and all the best for the future uh, with Morantics and everything that you're building and working on. Thank you, Silvan. All the best. This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.